I was started to, to prepare it, and uh, almost I said, you know, I'm not going to. I just going to do this only because there's just so much here, and you could just spend a lot of time, and it wouldn't be impossible for me to do so. I don't think in a, in a church service setting, you're more happy to, to do it on a private basis, but. It's just so much here, and to do this in a way, in one message that is concise, that gets the point across, is maybe not my strongest suit anyway, but, and I got into it, I said, you know, I've got to, it's too important, this is a passage that has been so confusing for so many, I think has done a lot of damage when it comes to just good biblical theology. What I want you to keep in mind is that the idea, and what I'm going to be showing you here is my, what I understand, the, the, the what I'm going to present for you today is the what has been historically the position of most Christians. The positions, whether you be all-mill, historical pre-mill, post-mill, they would all hold basically to what I am going to tell you, uh, that there is not a seven-year tribulation in an Antichrist uh, making a compact with a uh, covenant with Israel. And I know that in America this it seems like that has been the prevalent view. But just remember, it's only been that way for a couple of hundred years. 1820, before 1820, you would have never heard the what I'm going to deal with here, uh, the, the view of the dispensationalist of chapter 9 of Daniel, that this is a text they have used, and really the only text, without it, it kind of falls apart, the idea that there's going to be a future seven-year tribulational period with an antichrist, without this text, that becomes very difficult. Well, I think it's difficult anyway, but almost impossible to maintain. So, just keep those things in mind because we, as Americans, no doubt, we have this idea that the that the seven year tribulation is just Orthodox Christianity, but it's not. And so, don't be confused or at least surprised by what I'm going to present to you today because it's worth. It's not, this is kind of the, the normal view, I think, throughout church history, you know. And yet, it's a difficult passage. It's difficult to translate if you kind of compare it with all the translations. And so it does, it has its challenges, but that doesn't mean that we can't understand the overall idea of what's happening here. And that's going to, what I'm going to try to convey today. Remember, as we finished up the book of Revelation last week, we saw that uh, the one river and one uh, street, one river, one tree of life in the New Jerusalem speaks of the life that comes to Christ alone. In Revelation 22.4, we read that they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. One of the key verses, I think, of the book. We saw that it is the pinnacle of salvation and existence to finally see the face of God and not die. We also saw that the, uh, that the 12 times 12 the uh, 144 is mentioned several times in conjunction with the New Jerusalem. Remember, 12 foundational stones, 12 gates, 144, the New Jerusalem being the bride of Christ, the church. And so here we see the final piece of the uh, puzzle being put together, and his name will be on their foreheads. Let's us know then that the 144,000 with the name upon the forehead that we've seen in chapter 7 and chapter 14, is not uh, 144,000 Jewish men who are virgins in the tribulation. It's the church. And and so, you know, just 
seems to me it's very difficult if you try to keep things in context to go any other direction. And then we saw that multiple times the book ends with the statements of who will spend eternity with our Heavenly Father and who will spend eternity with their father, the devil, uh, those who practice evil. And so we saw that the sons of God act like their father, which proves that they are his sons, and the sons of Satan do the same. So just some uh, interesting things that we saw in the last chapter of the book of Revelation. Now, first of all, one thing difficult about Daniel chapter 9, and and speaking especially the final four verses, is that uh, if if you're not going through Daniel verse by verse, you, you have to have some sort of context. And what we don't want to do is go into Daniel 9 and just pull it out of context, make it mean something that doesn't fit in with the book, right? So let me just give you a little bit of an overall context of what's going on here. Uh, from uh, In Daniel chapter 9 verse 2, Daniel knows from, uh, in reading uh, the prophets, for instance, Jeremiah 25, Jeremiah is mentioned uh, there, Verse 11, he comes to understand that the 70 years of captivity were about to expire because he knows that it began with the deportation under Nebuchadnezzar. So he knows it's about to end. For instance, it says there, this whole land will become a ruin and a waste and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. And so Daniel lived to see uh, the end, kind of see that take place, or, or you know, to that those 70 years. And so he prays in, in the first part of chapter 9, he's confessing the sins of the people. He's, he's, he's realizing that, it, that the Lord has said he's about to bring them back to Jerusalem to rebuild and so forth. And so he's confessing the sins of the people because that's why they were carried off to begin with. And God responds to this prayer by sending Gabriel uh, and, and, and his response is that after the 70 years are completed it will be followed by 77s or 70 periods of 7 years, 70 weeks of years and that at the end of those 490 years something far more terrible uh, a, a far more terrible sin is going to be committed by the people of Israel that's going to re- result in the very end of the nation of the covenant itself. And that's what we see here. Uh, verses 24 of, of Daniel 9 through 27 is Gabriel's answer to uh, Joseph's prayer. And one thing that happens if you go on to read in chapter 10, Daniel is beside himself with grief. He has been fasting for three weeks. He is a a mess. And I think the reason is because Daniel understands more or less what the significance of those of Gabriel's response is. We see this if you're in chapter 10. We'll just read a few verses here. Starting in verse 1. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a word was revealed to Daniel, who was named Belshazzar, and the word was true, and it was a great Conflict, and he understood the word and had understanding of the vision. There are no chapter divisions. This is the result of chapter nine. In those days, I Daniel was mourning for three weeks. Uh, skip down to verse twelve. 
Then he said to me, Fear not, Daniel. For the angel comes and, and ministers to Daniel and kind of takes care of him. For from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard, and I have come because of your word. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me twenty-one days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was there, left there with the kings of Persia. And I think he's referring here primarily, these princes are angels, angels that seem to have some uh, influence, whether from Satan, the demons, or from God. Obviously, Michael was a prince from the Lord. There's activity among the nations and spiritual warfare going on that we really are not privy to, but you, you see Gabriel talk about how he has been with, uh, withstood by kings under the influence of these probably demons, these princes, and Michael came and helped him. So it's, it's a fascinating verses that we just really don't aren't aren't able to understand. Probably someday we will. But uh, anyway, that's kind of what he's going on in telling telling him. And so in verse fourteen, and came I come to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision is for the days yet to come. So he's, he's just explaining this is a this is these four verses are, is a prophecy about the latter end of your people. Which we'll come, we'll come to understand here in a moment. Verse 17. How, how can my Lord servant talk with my Lord? For now no strength remains in me and no breath is left in me. Daniel, that's why Daniel is so upset. Because he understands the significance that Israel is going to do something that's going to bring about uh, a severe tribulation. And so in verse 18, again, one having the appearance of a man touched me and strengthen me. And so you see here Gabriel coming and ministering to Daniel and trying to help him understand what's going on. And so what we have here is that chapters 10 through 12 are is a prophecy, is another more prophecies given to Daniel to explain what's going to be happening, happening during these 490 years, these 70 weeks of years. So the four verses in, that we're going to look at today are the prophecy in a general idea, and then there's be more specifics given to the history of those 490 years. And if you understand and, and read the history of uh, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome, and their relationship to Israel, you find that it's an extremely accurate prophecy of the years from Daniel, you might say, or Cyrus at least, until the Lord comes back in 70 A.D. in the destruction of Jerusalem. So that's kind of a, a context of what we're seeing here in Daniel, starting in chapter 9, verse 24. So as we come to um, the prophecy, verse 24, the first thing to consider is that one must assume that these visions concern the next 490 years, since we shall see here that uh, part of this is that at, in, the, in the 70th week, the Messiah will be cut off, or the Messiah will be put to death. So, it's pretty obvious, because it begins with the decree of Cyrus to go and to rebuild, I believe, basically Jerusalem and the temple, and that it, the timeline begins there, and it ends, the 70th week ends when Jesus comes and dies on the cross, or at least 
That's during the 70th week. And so you, the first thing you have to understand is that this is what's going on. It's a timeline until Christ. So there is no need to assume that the last week is to be separated by thousands of years that have no connection to the previous 69 weeks. Because as we're going to see here, it is in during the 70th week in which Christ is crucified. And then there are those who believe there's a gap that 79 kind of takes you to Christ and that for whatever reason, I guess because the Jews reject Christ, that the 70th week is jettisoned until sometime in the future, obviously 2,000 years or more later. But there's nothing to to uh, suggest that. These are consecutive years. That Historically, you see them as consecutive years, and so you wouldn't assume otherwise. In fact, dispensationalists insist that all these things take place not as the result of Christ's first advent, and, and the, all these things are the things we're going to see here in verse 24. They don't re- take place as a result of Christ's first advent, but just before the second coming of uh, Jesus Christ in the, 70, in the 70th week begins. And yet what we're going to see here is that 70 weeks are determined for the Messiah to come, and, and, and that's what's going to lead to all these things taking place at that time, not later on. We'll try to make that point as we go through here. And so the ba- basic question is here is whether this is fulfilled in 490 years, or all of this is pointing not to Christ, but to the Antichrist. And my contention is, is that as we're going to see here, this is a prophecy about the time period between Cyrus and Christ, and when Christ comes, all these things are going to take place, it has not got anything to do with the Antichrist and a seven-year tribulation. And I believe a natural reading of this text shows it all fulfilled by 70 AD, and if so, there is no other text in the Bible that hints to a seven-year tribulation with an Antichrist making a covenant with the nation of Israel. That, there's certainly no other place where, that, that, that even suggests anybody making a covenant with Israel for a week. And it doesn't say that here, as we'll see, but this is the text that they would use. Uh, an interesting <coughs> uh, verse in Mark 1.14, where Jesus, uh, it will, well, Mark tells us, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God, and saying, the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. When he says the time is fulfilled, it's not just some vague statement that's saying that it's about time for God to send the Son to, to die and, and do all these things. It's the language of fulfillment. In other words, there's a specific time that has been prophesied, prophesied that has got to happen, and Jesus is saying, and we'll see some other verses where it's even more clear, the time of this prophecy is now, it's time for it to be fulfilled. I think he's referring here in part to all the prophets, no doubt, but certainly to Daniel. And I, I think we'll show that very clearly. In fact, Daniel, uh, the, the book of Daniel is the only Old Testament prophecy that gives a timetable, a chronological, uh, verifiable timetable for when Christ was going to come in his first advent. Which is why Jesus could speak of signs in Matthew 24 when he says 
that when you see these things take place, and he, and he says specifically, when you see the, the prophecies that Daniel spoke about, then you know that these things are being fulfilled. He's referring to 70 AD. He's not referring to coming again. But we're not given specific signs like that. He's speaking about uh, 70 AD. And he mentions that Daniel was speaking about that. So it's a huge clue. And we'll talk about that in just a second. So first of all, though, in verse 24, what are the things that will happen after 490 years? And the first thing we see here is that they will finish the transgression. Now, uh, there are some uh, debate here about whether these first four things all refer to Christ and his work on the cross, which it would make perfect sense if it did. I wouldn't argue very much about that. But I think we could also say that the, that the first one especially could be saying that it, after 490 years, Israel will have made, will sin by rejecting the Messiah and all this covenant breaking is going to come to a head. So in other words, the transgression of the nation of Israel in breaking covenant is going to be settled. And since that is certainly, as we're going to see here in these four verses, uh, something that is being prophesied, I could, it would make perfect sense to me that this first thing isn't referring necessarily to what Christ uh, is going to do on the cross and forgiving our sins, but it speaks specifically of the national sin of Israel. Look at uh, here, as I have on the screen, Matthew twenty three thirty two. This is, of course, Jesus as he's getting ready to uh, transition into Matthew 24. He says, fill up then the measure of your fathers, you serpents. Now, he's talking to the leadership of Israel, you brood of vipers. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore, I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town. So that on you, so he said, I'm sending these things just so that you can reject them and do what you do, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, and again, that's in Second Kings, that being the, the final chapter of the Jewish, the way the Jewish that had put together the Old Testament, the last thing that took place was Zechariah being slaughtered, uh, martyred, you might say, uh, there. That's what it's referring to. Basically, the whole, all the, the period of the prophets, the son of Zechariah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how oft would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, so it, you might say, we paraphrase it, as a result of that, your house is left to you desolate, that is, the Lord is, is uh, removing himself from the uh, temple it is now not my house, but it is your house. Covenant has been broken. That covenant is over. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So, so you see, and we're going to see some other verses here that are, that are very similar to this, that the time has come 
pour some sort of great judgment upon Israel. And so it's a, it's in, I think probably the first thing mentioned here in Daniel 9 is to finish the transgression. Again, it's not normal language of fulfillment, or I say that it's not normal language of crosswork, but of fulfillment. In other words, 70, 490 years in which uh, something has got to reach its final end to be fulfilled. And so it's similar, you might say, to the Ammonites who filled up their transgression for those 400 years and then when Israel came to enter the land, that's when they, the Ammonites had filled up their transgression and they were destroyed because of it. I think that's the same idea. Notice also then, 1 Thessalonians 2.14. This is Paul now. For you, brothers, become, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets, and drove us out, and displeased God, and opposed all mankind. You think about it, the Jews, one of the things they hated about the Christianity was that it was saying it, they were to preach to the whole world. It is no longer just the Jews were going to have life, but the Gentiles also. They opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them at last. Paul probably wrote this in the early 50s, but in other words, something was about to take place, and of course that took place in the uh, latter part of the 60s AD. Uh, The wrath was coming against the nation in the form of Titus and the Roman armies. So you see how these things start to come together. The final national transgression was to reject the Messiah. Acts 13.27 For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him, nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which again is interesting, because I don't want to make the same mistake that I think some do today and misunderstand what the prophets are talking about, right? Because the, the early the, the Jews in Jesus' day didn't understand, which was read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. So the Jews condemned, they cut off the Messiah that we're going to see here in verse 27, and fulfilled the prophecy of Daniel, among others. And so I think that probably the first one at least points to what this final transgression of Israel and its judgment. Secondly, we see that at the end of these 490 years, the Messiah is going to come and put an end to sin. And of course, you think about Hebrews 1.3. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature and upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So we, we certainly see here, it, it, it's very obvious that the Messiah was going to come at the end of these uh this 490 years. Thirdly, to atone for iniquity, Colossians 1.20, and through him to reconcile himself of all things. Part of the 
cross work is not just to forgive our sins, but to bring about reconciliation, to atone for this iniquity so that there's peace with God, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And we'll, we'll just read that much right there. So you see that each one of these things, I think, these first few things point to Jesus, at least the second, third, and fourth thing. The fourth one being to bring in everlasting righteousness. Uh, And it certainly could uh, refer to imputed righteousness. It probably refers to bringing in uh, the righteous kingdom. It it, it, it refer to how Jesus is going to defeat sin and bring in the new heaven and the new earth to bring in a kingdom of righteousness. He's going to do something that's going to be established forever. Then fifthly, it's a little bit more difficult here to seal up visions and prophecies, uh, literally to seal up vision and prophet, uh, the, the, the concept of those things. Now, uh, the idea here is not to fulfill something, but to close it up. And some see this as to seal up prophecies about to Israel, so that they no longer... And that happened, where the Lord blinded Israel's eyes, right? We saw that in the parables of Jesus, Isaiah chapter uh, 6, that takes place, that God was going to uh, harden their hearts and not to believe. But I, I don't think that's probably what it's referring to. Because uh, remember, these are things that are going to come about by the Messiah at the end of that 490 years, that they were going to take place as a result of the Messiah coming and doing his work. So I don't think it's something that was going to describe the 490 years, but something that's going to take place after they're done. So what could that be? Well, what did happen at this time was that all prophecy was fulfilled, and we know with the completion of the canon that no prophecy is no, is no longer needed. So Jesus coming and doing his work brings all these things about. He demonstrated that in the book of Revelation. The Old Testament prophecies were almost exclusively pointing to the coming Messiah and the kingdom that he was going to set up, not about a future coming later. And so uh, when Christ came, and, and then finally at 70 AD, all the prophecies of the Old Testament were fulfilled. They're no longer needed. And of course we no longer have prophets today because we have the full revelation. So I think that basically explains uh, what's going on here. Jesus said that the Old Testament was about him, not about the Antichrist. And so uh, it, the, prop, the prophecies don't relate to anything after 70 AD from the Old Testament as such. Sixthly, it says to anoint a most holy place. Now this again is, is debatable what it means. Uh, the ESV correctly has A, not the most holy place. But a holy place is not in the original, so a holy, to anoint a holy. And so you can imagine, you know, what in the world does that mean? Some say that it uh, refers to the temple, but the only place that the temple, the holy place was ever anointed in some way was at Hanukkah during Antiochus Epiphanes when he, when the Maccabees overthrew him and they rededicated the temple. That's the only time that ever took place. So I don't think this is referring to that because if it was during Hanukkah, 
it, it wouldn't fit into the time frame. Some see it as referring to when Christ uh, was uh, anointed, when he was baptized and the Holy Spirit anointed him. And that works. I wouldn't argue that too much. Uh, it could be that that, because that's one of the things that was going to take place. But I'm not sure that that was so significant that it would be mentioned here. Others say that refers to Jesus when he ascended up into heaven and he brought with his atonement peace between God and man. I think that's better. Uh, but I don't know if that's really what's being referred to. I think to me, most probably, it refers to the fulfillment of the holy place as the dwelling place of God. Remember, we just finished this in the book of Revelation. The church is the fulfillment of the temple. That perfect cube that describes the New Jerusalem is the place where God dwells with man. So the fulfillment, again, this this is significant, so I think it would be included here, is that when Christ comes, he's going to atone for sin and also bring in the prompty, the great promise of the old covenant that we, uh, well, the promise of the new covenant, which is the Holy Spirit in us. I think it probably refers to Pentecost and the establishment of the kingdom on earth through in the church. We are the now become the holy place, the place where God dwells. So that to me is the best answer. But again, that there are those who would uh, you know debate that and we'll let that go. Verse twenty-five. That those are the. So there, it kind of lets us know what's going to happen in 490 years. In verse 25, we're kind of given a time frame about when this is going to happen. And notice here, Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem, which we know Cyrus did that, to the coming of an anointed one, and of course Christ would be the anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks and then 62 weeks. In other words, there will be seven sevens, 49 years, and then there, there's a separation here, and then there's going to be, uh, from that, 60 not, 62 more uh, weeks of years until uh, that take, this prince, this anointed prince, comes. And, and it's, you know, no, no one really debates the fact that he's talking about the Lord Jesus Christ there. Then for 62 weeks, it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in troubled times. And so 25 is talking about this, but it's kind of, it's giving us a time frame. 26 tells us what's going to happen. 26 tells us when it's going to happen. At first we remind ourselves that the two primary subjects of these four verses are the judgment of Israel and the coming of the Messiah. And you don't want to get that, you don't want to forget that. And that's, that's the two things that are repeated here. We'll see that especially in 26 and 27. That's the subject. The end of Israel, the destruction of Israel, and the coming Messiah. When the Messiah comes, it's going to trigger the destruction of Israel, which we've already seen a little bit in the New Testament already. And this helps us understand what's going on, even if we uh, you know, have some other questions, at least we want to understand the, the main point. Now notice here, Matthew twenty four fifteen. I think this will help submit what I've been saying. Jesus says, So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, and that's what we're looking at right now, verse 27, he's going to actually refer to the abomination that makes desolate. There's ways to, to uh, translate it. Jesus 
tells that generation, when you see that take place that the prophet Daniel talked about, what is that? It's the standing in the holy place. Let the reader understand. So, it's going to be where the holy place is going to be. Someone's going to be standing in it, desecrated in an abomination of desolation. Understand, for then there will be, at that time, there's going to be a great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, and no will never be. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Three extremely important verses that tell us that Daniel is speaking of 70 AD, of the Messiah coming and doing his work, that ends with 70 AD, that it is, that's the abomination of desolation, and that that generation is going to see what Daniel's talking about fulfilled. So it can't be referring to some point in the future yet. Extremely important verses. Luke's version of this, verse, chapter 21, verse 20, but when you see Jerusalem's surrounded by armies, then you know that its desolation has come near. So, the abomination of desolation is the destruction of Jerusalem, and it's, when Titus came with his Roman armies, that was what Daniel's talking about. Let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, let those who are inside the city depart, and let not those who are out in the country enter it, for these are the days of vengeance, to fulfill all that is written. All that is written Certainly by Daniel, and I think really all of them. These are the days of vengeance. This is the great tribulation. Alas for women who are pregnant, for those who are nursing infants in those days. For there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And so we see here that it's, he says, especially like in Matthew 24, that this great tribulation, there will be nothing like it in the future. So, so again, it, no, the world has never seen anything like it before or after. So that is the great tribulation. Again, if we just let the scripture speak for itself, I think we just save ourselves a lot of problems. And so back in Daniel chapter, 20, chapter 9, verse 25, He says here that there will be 69, there were, there's going to be a period of 7-7, seven, seven, and then there's going to be a rebuilding. I think, and, and again, there's debate about what, why he's breaking this up, but I think basically what he's saying here is that there, from the decree to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem, there will be a period of time. And then when the sacrifices are set up and it's put in motion, then from there on there's going to be another period of 62-7, and then the Messiah is going to come and do his work. I think that's basically how 25b is breaking this down for us. And then in verse 26, he says, after telling us what's going to happen and when it's going to happen, he says, after that 62 weeks, which brings us to the 69th week, to the end of the 69th week, an anointed one shall be cut off, and here it says, and have nothing uh, from what I can read, that the commentators say that what it what it really is saying there is, and he shall be cut off, but not for himself. 
So again, I think it's a good picture of the cross. Christ is going to be killed, but not for himself. He's dying for us. And John nothing. And the people of the prince, the, the subject here now is the people, not the prince, the people of the prince shall come. This is clearly the, the Roman army, the prince, either Titus or on behalf of the Roman emperor, the people of their ruler or, or their general will come and will destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood. That is the end of Jerusalem. And to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. And so the 69 weeks of years bring us to the start of Jesus' ministry. And I think a good case could be made that it brings us right up until the time of the beginning of his ministry when he was anointed, when he was baptized and began his ministry. Whether it's to the day or to the year, I think it's pretty close. I, I think I think that's pretty obvious. Otherwise, this why would Jesus or Daniel be told, you know, these specific dates? But it doesn't necessarily have to mean it's exactly uh, 490 years. Because remember, the 70 years of captivity were about 70 years. And so when he says there shall be these 490 years, it could just mean primarily this is about what it's going to be until Jesus comes. So I'm not going to get all tripped out about whether it's right down to the day and all that kind of stuff. Because we really can't verify it that closely anyway. Although I think some have done a pretty good job of showing that it does lead up until about 33 or so A.D. or whatever it was, when, when Jesus probably would have been like 29 or something A.D., when Jesus was 30 and began his ministry. And so we have these 70 weeks. He then speaks of the second prophecy. So the first prophecy is the Messiah coming and dying. The second prophecy is that at that time, that that's going to trigger something that's going to bring about the destruction of Jerusalem. And we see both of those in Verse 26, and this is the end in which in Daniel speaks to the end of the nation and their covenant with God. God will be through with them as a nation. They have served their purpose. They have the rejection of Christ brought about redemption from sin. And now the unified church, both Jew and Gentile, moves on into the new covenant. We notice this end comes in a flood of war, which would speak to what Jesus said was going to happen when Titus came and surrounded Jerusalem. That's the abomination that brings desolation. And so that brings us now then to verse 27, which is the one that really people I think have gone off on, some people have gone off on in confusion. When they try to make the he refer back to the prince. And so verse 27 of Daniel says, and he shall make a covenant with many for one week. Who is the he? That's kind of the big debate among some. Well, first of all, remember, the subject has been the Messiah. First of all, was the Messiah being cut off, and then the people shall come and destroy the, the city. Not Titus, not a prince, but the people of the prince shall come. So the he... You would naturally just read in this, not assume it's referring to the prince of the people, but to the people. But he doesn't say they, it says he. And there is no place in scripture, and there's no place in uh, his history, 
where Titus, the prince of the people who came, or the Roman emperor, however you want to look at that, made any kind of covenant with the nation of Israel. Titus begged Israel for three and a half years as he besieged Jerusalem. He begged them to give up, and he would not kill them. And eventually, when they would not, when he was able to break in, he pretty much slaughtered all of them. There was no covenant made. There's no place. But who did make a covenant with many? Well, we know the Lord Jesus Christ made a covenant. And don't get tripped up when it says he shall make a strong covenant with many for a week. That is uh, a difficult passage that you have know, to translate into English. But the scholars are pretty unified there, uh, the, the commentators. That, In other words, the point is that in that last week, during that last week, he shall make a covenant. Of Christ, we, we know that Christ came, and uh, remember at the, uh, when he instituted the Lord's table, this is the blood of the new covenant. Christ came and established a covenant in that final week. And so the he, I don't think there's, there should be any question about it, but again, if you're trying to slide a system into this, you, you can have problems. But if you just read it, the he refers back to the... Uh, Messiah, the anointed one. In fact, I've been, I've been studying this. Uh, it, it's been made clear that you shouldn't look at 26 and 27 as 26 happens and then 27 happens. But this, this is an example of parallelism where 26 is presented in a, a certain aspect and then 27 is repeating it but adding to uh, the information. And so it's kind of like Hebrew poetry. And so... In 26, we're told about the Christ coming and being dying for the sins and then the destruction of Jerusalem. And 27 is saying the same thing. This Messiah shall come. He will establish a covenant in that last week. And for the half of that week, he shall put it into sacrifice. So in the midst of that week, it doesn't necessarily have to be three and a half years, although it's hard to miss that it was Jesus ministered for three and a half years and then he did his cross work, but it's literally just saying in the midst of that week, it could be in the at the half point of that week, he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. Well, we know that when he died on the cross, he put an end to the need of sacrifice and offerings in the temple. But it it probably refers not just to that, but he's going to put it to, he's putting an end to the need of the temple. So when the temple is later destroyed. That, that's the finality of it, because it's no longer needed anyway. And then, just like in 26, both of these things are talked about. In verse 27, the latter part talks about Titus and the Roman armies. And on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed an end shall be poured out on the desolator. And again, you read, the ESVS doesn't do a particularly great job of translating verse 27, uh, but none of the translations do all that great a job anyway, so you've kind of got to do a lot of study on this. So, that now I think puts together what's going on. During that last week, you make the covenant with many, but not just for a week, but during that week, he comes as their king according to the covenant and is rejected. So this isn't a prophecy so much about the coming kingdom, but the desolation of the old covenant and the nation. And in that week, 
he shall bring an end to the temple worship because he first fulfills all those things. There's no hint, as I said before, of Titus making any covenant with Jerusalem and to say, well, no, this speaks about a, a antichrist in, in the, the 70th week is, is, is uh, jettisoned in the future and that the antichrist is going to make a covenant with Israel means that you take the latter part of verse 27 and just completely rip it away from the whole context of Daniel 9 and make it mean something that, that had nothing to do with the first uh, part of the chapter, those first four verses. But I just don't think you can do that with good biblical hermeneutics. So finally then, the end comes in conjunction with the cutting off of the Messiah. Now it's been suggested that since Jesus was crucified, and we're almost done here, too, by the way, but it's one, so don't panic, we'll go a little further. It's been suggested that since Jesus was crucified three and a half years into the 70th week, that there's still three and a half years left, as it were. Now, again, that's assuming that this has to be, work out to exactly 490 years, but if it, it, but in one sense, it could just mean that 70 years are determined for all this to take place, and since Jesus came, and did his work in that 70th year, that's the end of it. And that would make perfect sense. But I don't th- but I don't think it necessarily has to end there. The prophecy is fulfilled in one sense, but because it took 70 weeks of years anyway. But it's interesting that on the cross, Jesus asked the Father to forgive them. And, you know, have you ever thought about that? And we talked a little bit about this in this week, John. But I've always wondered about that because Jesus... When he prays a prayer, it's got to be answered. And, and Jesus doesn't pray out of the Father's will, so it has to be answered. And so if Jesus asks the Father to forgive them so they know not what they do, who is he talking about and how in the world was it answered? But we say, well, the people who crucified him were saved. Well, there's no, we don't know that. We know that one of the uh, Roman centurions seems to be a, become a believer, but there's no indication that they were all saved. You know, what does that mean? Well, somebody, there's there's a view of this that would, I think, certainly make good sense. I wanted to read to you what he says and how he deals with this idea that technically you still have three and a half years after the cross. He says the prophecy of the 70 weeks is manifestly an account given beforehand of the second period of the national existence of the Jewish people, that is, the, the first period being what happened with the kings and what we're studying now and so forth, and the second period being from Daniel uh, on, onward. They were to last as a nation only long enough to fulfill the scriptures and to accomplish the supreme purpose of God in bringing forth the Messiah and putting him to death. The time allotted for this was 490 years. This being accomplished, God had no further use for Israel. His dealings Thenceforth were to be with another people, that holy nation, composed of all who believed the gospel and who received the one who was rejected by his own. Yet, the predicted judgment did not immediately follow. In other words, Daniel makes it out like when Messiah is cut off, then the nation is going to be destroyed, but we know that it was 40 years until the nation is destroyed. And he's saying this is why, perhaps. Yet the predicted judgment did not immediately follow, for Christ prayed for his murderers in his dying hour, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. 
In answer to that prayer, the full probationary period of 40 years or a generation was added to their national existence, during which time repentance and remission of sins was preached to them in the name of the crucified and risen one, and tens of thousands of Jews were saved. So it could be the fact that, that Jesus postponed national judgment and gave them a time in which the gospel went forth, Jews were saved, but of course the end was going to come, but there was an extension of grace. And I think that's certainly possible. I think it's pretty interesting. I just leave you with one other verse in Luke that deals with three and a half years. And he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard. And the whole idea here is about him being rejected by the Jews. And he's come and seeking fruit and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree. And Israel is always referred to as a fig tree in the Old Testament. And I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. And so it's almost like Jesus saying, I've come for three years now. I'm presenting myself as your Messiah as being rejected. And the time uh, for it to be cut down is coming. And you see here an idea perhaps of a postponement for a while, but that's kind of what the other the guy that I just quoted is referring to. So in other words, their time has run its course. Even in Jesus' day, it makes it very plain. And so while this is quite a prophecy, and it has various interpretations, but I think what I have laid before you is the general idea, I think it's not too hard to see that its primary point is... Jesus coming in the destruction of Jerusalem, not a future seven-year period, and the reestablishment of Israel and the Antichrist. Daniel's prophecies are about the seven years leading up to Christ, the seven, excuse me, the 490 years leading up to Christ and the final judgment of the nation. If you read it with that in mind, I think it becomes very practical. It authenticates the Bible as God's word, and it fits into the rest of the prophets. If you made the prophecies of Daniel about what happens there in a future tribulational period, I think you create more problems than you could possibly fix, which we have dealt with as we've gone through uh, the book of Revelation. So, let me then in closing add one more thing to all this. Have you ever wondered why you got 490 years? Why did the Lord just say 500 years? Why not 350 years? And there's a sense in which, well, you got 70 years of captivity. Now he says you got 77 that's going to deal with this next. And so there's a correlation there for sure. But he doesn't just say 77. It's 490. And so my question is, then why 490? God doesn't do random. God doesn't just say, well, you know, I've got to come up with some period of time. Let's make it 490 years until the Messiah comes from Cyrus's decree. It could be 500. It could be 350. Let's just do 490. Well, the Lord doesn't do random. And so, I don't, the, the point isn't just that you got 490 chronological 
years, which I think you do, there is that time frame, but I think 490 is also theological. Or, who, who, does anyone here know the significance of 49 in the Bible? about that? Well, right. I don't, we're going we're gonna, to, okay, <laughs> right, that, that's right, but there's a reason for it, in other words. Le- Leviticus 25.8, you shall count seven weeks of years, seven times seven years, so that the time of the seven weeks of years shall give you 49 years. So, it's, so clearly, I think the angels Pulling from this, uh, when he talks to Daniel, so he say, "Well, how do you know it's seven sevens is, is years? That's four hundred ninety years." Well, because he's pulling it from, I think this. Then you shall sound the loud trumpet on the tenth day of the seventh month, on the day of atonement. You shall sound the trumpet throughout all your land, and you shall consecrate the fiftieth year and proclaim it, proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you when each of you shall return to his property and each of you shall return to his land. And so it's the law of the uh, year of jubilee. For 49 years, everything went on as normal. But on that 50th year, it was like a year of Sabbath, Sabbath rest. If you owed money, if you had lost your home, if you were a slave, all that got forgiven. And you were able to go back and enjoy it. You didn't have to plant crops. You lived off what you had before. It was a whole year of rest. And now here comes the angel to Daniel and said, 49 or 7 7, 10 times 49 has been, has been decreed until what happens? Christ comes, Messiah comes. We saw in Revelation at the Number 10 speaks of a magnification of whatever's being talked about. So 10 periods of jubilee, 10 periods, 10 jubilees before the final jubilee come in Christ's finished work. And I'll leave you with this verse and we'll close. For Jesus says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captive, the recovery of sight to the blind, who set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, which is a reference back to its jubilee language. One of the things that happens, of course, when Christ has done his work, as he has given us rest, he has brought us into favor with God, and we look forward to that day of final rest, of course, in heaven someday. So I don't think it negates the chronological uh, time frame, for 490 years did bring us to Christ. Obviously that worked out to the time of Christ's ministry. But we see here that 49 isn't a random number. It's all part of this. It's the marvelous fabric of Scripture how the Lord brings all these things together to bring us to Christ. Uh, God does not do random. So I thought that was Any questions? It's